Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us on this week's program. Back in the early 2000s, the Navy and Marine Corps became the first military services to reach the conclusion that their enterprise IT needs would be better served by turning the management of their networks over to the private sector. It was an unorthodox decision at the time, but not anymore. A few years ago, the Air Force started the process of privatizing its on-base IT infrastructure through a project called Enterprise IT as a Service. Now the Army's doing essentially the same thing, using the same name. But deciding to commercialize those networks is one thing. Deciding exactly how and how much control the government should continue to have over those networks is another. And that's the process the Army is just now starting. By the end of this year, it hopes to have awarded pilot projects to three different companies to start experimenting with commercialization approaches on up to nine different small, medium, and large bases. And in defense contracting terms, the Army is planning on moving very, very quickly. It's using other transaction agreements for the pilot projects, with just a month between the solicitation announcement that just came out and the final due date for proposals. To talk more about the Army's experiment with Enterprise IT as a Service, we have two guests with us this week. Dan Joyce is with the Program Executive Office for Enterprise Information Systems. He's the Assistant PEO for Cyber, Networks, and Services. And Charlie Statlander is Communications Director at Army Cyber Command. Statlander is the first voice you'll hear. I think it starts with the understanding that the network itself, um, the transfer of data and information, is is, uh, what my boss, Lieutenant General Fogarty, uh, considers the Army's foundational weapon system, in, in the sense that every Army operation, whether it's movement, contact, supply, retrograde, etc. Every Army operation relies upon the timely and reliable delivery of, of, of well-defended data. You know, and, and with that in mind, um, you know, the Army obviously today owns, operates, and manages our, our global communications uh, network. Uh, but at the same time, the private sector telecommunications companies and other technology companies uh, have been developing uh, rapidly uh, the types of technologies that can perform this function. And uh, the the, the pilot seeks to uh, ask the question of of some of these potential industry partners, uh, what can you offer the Army uh, in in this space? And we're looking specifically to companies who might do this as as part of their own day-to-day business and part of their their, their, their product that they do for a living uh, and the understanding that th- they might do it better than the Army does it today and, and we're open to seeing what they have to offer. And, and as you guys point out in the announcement, there is precedent for this. The Navy has the most history with this, obviously, but the Air Force has dipped its toe into these waters too. So, so given the fact that there is that background in the DOD context, what are the kinds of questions, Army-specific questions, that you're kind of trying to answer with, with these pilot projects? Hey, this is Charlie again. So uh, I, I think it's important to realize that, you know, we, we the Army, share a lot of the same um, uh, IT uh, challenges and, and mission set with our, our fellow joint service partners, but there also is going to be an, an Army-specific, an, an Army-unique um, approach to some of our own um, combat requirements. Obviously, the Army's more uh, ground combat focused, uh, different sort of global footprint, different different sort of uh, basing size, different sort of um, uh, basing type. Um, so uh, 
um, th the lessons that we're learning from the Air Force and the Navy are really um, examining what's the right mix of what the service needs to own, operate, maintain, do ourselves, uh, in, and then what uh, a commercial partner could uh, perform a function for us. And that involves both software, hardware, data transport, maintenance, service, th those sorts of functions. And so, as, you know, as far as actually operationalizing the pilots to answer those questions, I, I mean, are you going to have a mix on different bases of different amounts of services being provided by a commercial partner versus certain things being provided by the government? Or is, is that really up to the industry partner to decide what they, what they want to construct on each installation? So what we've, what we've constructed, we've had our, our going in position is we'd like to see the vendors pretty much commercialize the entire operation. Not entirely. There's certain things that are out of scope. Some of the highly classified networks, uh, the tactical part of the Army network is out of scope of this. But we want to see, can you get that entire base? Can you do all the IT services we need that, that base? Can the industry partner do that better with better outcomes for us than we're getting today? Um, so there's a few things that are out of scope, uh, but most of it is, is let's see how you can do for the entire the entire installation and uh, see if we get a better outcome with industry best practices. Right. And I think each vendor, and you're going to select up to three, as I understand it, but each vendor is going to be in charge of a small, a medium, and a large installation. So, so talk us through the rationale behind that particular construct, why each one's going to have a sort of a mix of, of, of different footprints, footprint sizes. So, Jared, this is, this is Charlie. I, I think the, um, the right way to approach that is not necessarily in terms of size, uh, but more in terms of the diversity of the Army mission set. And we've right. intentionally selected some pilot locations that represent that wide variety of what the Army does on a day-to-day -day basis. Some are what we call force comm bases. This is where our larger combat units might be stationed. Uh, some are training uh, bases that uh, have schools and, and large education requirements. Some house Army business systems and, and much more res resemble uh, office parks than they, than they do military bases. And some are definitely representing the Army Reserve and Army National Guard, uh, which are a key part of the total Army and, and have uh, unique IT challenges unto themselves. So we want to make sure that as we're moving through this pilot, and it truly is a pilot, we want to see what lessons learned come back from this, um, that we're, 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 we're testing the types of different bases that make sense and are really going to instruct us. So, Dan, let's talk about the acquisition strategy here a little bit. You're, okay. you're using other transaction authority, top to bottom, as I understand it, for this, at least at, yes. the, at, least at, the, at, least at the pilot and prototype stage. Talk about right. the advantages of, of OTAs here and why you chose to go that route. I'll say the, the first and um, foremost advantage is the ability to go quickly and have lots of interaction with industry. Um, so I came from, I've been in, in doing acquisition on and off for about the last 13 years. Um, and, and like in the tactical radio space. What we will do, what we in the past have done in things like tactical radios is we studied what our requirements were. We looked across requirements across all of the various services and agencies. We took two or three years to write what we think is the perfect requirement document that specified the living crap out of what we really wanted to do. Then we handed it off to industry and kind of like told them how to build this. We didn't say, give me a modern tactical radio. We gave them all the specs and they had to go through it and we you know, spent years and years of development instead of saying what's out there today. So with the OTA, it it allows us to have lots of interaction with industry, which has been great in this process and for helping us helping us to better refine our requirement. 
Um, and then once we put out a requirement document, so the requirement document for this program, for the first round of solicitations, we, we got that done in about three months, and it was about maybe 15, 16 pages, instead of you know spending years on the requirement and then the years of source selection. So we, we got it out quickly, had an industry day in May, had lots of feedback from industry. We had some preconceived notions about our requirements, and industry said that's not really an issue for us. So, you know, we we modified it, and we we had a we had a thought that maybe there was a big issue about the regions, and we had to be really focused on regions. And then industry told us at, at our industry day was that's really not a, a big player. So that allowed us to quickly change our requirement to put a solicitation out on the street. So our our, our final solicitations went out on this Tuesday, this past Tuesday, from our first sessions in December to now, so that's just, just a little over seven months. That's that's like phenomenal to get something done that quickly. And so we will be able to get vendors on contract, on OTA contracts, and get them working moving forward on this early into FY20, which, again, it would be amazing to you know, to do that. So I think the, the speed and the flexibility of having that good interaction with industry on, on what's the art of the possible is really what, what drove us to do it this way. Yeah, and I think the go forward speed is is pretty amazing here too. As, as I read it, you've got, you're, you're giving vendors basically a month to get their final proposals in and you're going to start building right. by the end of this FY, right? right? Yes, sir. That's that's where our plan is. And we've been, you know, so we, we, well, we may get some feedback from vendors saying we need more time. We'll, we'll, you know, t- take that under advisement. Um, we have been, you know, we, we've, the stuff we put out in industry day and the the various updates we put out, we've been kind of using FedBizOps to communicate with them what we're, what we're thinking, what we're doing. So I think while we're now, we sh- it shouldn't be a great surprise to them what we're looking for. And I think a lot of them are probably had already started their proposals before we got the final set out. And so then, assuming some or all of the pilots work and you really like what comes out of this, would you anticipate taking these forward into OTA production work, or is, is it more likely that you would start some kind of brand new procurement to actually do the, the production build-outs on these installations? So I'll say that that's still an open question. I wouldn't say we're going one way or the other for sure. What I will tell you is that uh, the OTA statute that we're using allows, as Congress gave us additional um, support, I would say, allowing us to take an OTA to production. So we're using that section of the statute for our OTA. In our in our documentation, we do tell the vendors that we do have the do plan. We're giving ourselves the option to go to production if that's what we want to do. Um, so in our in our notional schedule, we do have a notional production period of I think about 36 months for the successful sites. Um, so that's in our game plan. I think that's still an Army senior leadership decision down the road that has not been made yet. But it gives us the flexibility. Let's say um, one of our first sites is going to be Fort Polk. If Fort Polk is a huge success, everyone loves what's going on there, the vendors are doing a great job, we're getting a better quality product for the amount of money we've been investing in the past, and Army senior leaders say we'd like to continue that effort, we have that option to go to production. Um, my personal opinion is I don't see... This is, again, my personal opinion, not Army policy here, but I don't see us doing 288 camps, posts, and stations all out of an OTA. You know, we were talking about the Jedi thing, right? Remember, the, the first? I think the first run, go round was they wanted to do a, like a billion-dollar OTA. Um, that, that, you know, my, my time in acquisition, is I, one of my recurring favorite phrases is Congress gets a vote. And I'm sure we probably have some, if we try to do that, you know, there might be some issues with the Congress about wanting to see more competition. But, I think. But we... 
we're giving us giving ourselves the flexibility to do that, but uh, it's not a not a decision that's been made yet. That's Dan Joyce, the Army's Assistant Program Executive Officer for Cyber Networks and Services. Charlie Statlander, the Communications Director at Army Cyber Command, is also with us as we talk about the Army's upcoming prototypes for enterprise IT as a service. More after a short break. This is on DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Our guests are Dan Joyce with the Army Program Executive Office for Enterprise Information Systems and Charlie Statlander from Army Cyber Command. Talking about the prototype project opportunity announcement the Army just released for Enterprise IT as a Service to start the process of commercializing the Enterprise IT on its more than 200 bases around the world. What do these pilots actually look like from the soldier, from the user's perspective? I mean, I mean if, you're, if you're working on one of these bases that's been selected for a pilot, are, are you a guinea pig for this new technology or I mean, are they actually connecting to mission systems or do they run in parallel to existing networks? For, for the end user, the, the, the goal is, is not, a, not a visible disruption to your day-to-day business and, and, and ideally an improvement in the speed, connectivity, uh, you know, lower downtimes, quicker, quicker help desk service, etc. Et uh, it, 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 the goal is not to, 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 Produce a, a shadow IT system that that runs alongside or or, or d- disrupts what's what's going on today. I think I think a lot of the the change will happen behind the scenes with with the um, um, a lot of the existing uh, equipment that, that's there today. That yeah, being you, the- you can add anything out to that. Go ahead, Dan. Do you want to chime in? No, no. I think I think that that's right. I mean that that we're we're looking for the industry partners to bring their best in class. Uh, solutions. Uh, it's not that the Army can't do that, but the, the the sheer scope of it and the pace at which we do things in the Department of Defense, you know, the, the five-year POM process kind of just makes us go a, just a little slower than industry does. Like AT&T, if they, if they got some customer that wants new stuff today and it's part of their contract and it's it wasn't in the budget, it's not like they got to wait two years till our budget comes passed by Congress, right? And AT&T, they're just going to say, okay, this is going to help our bottom line. They're going to invest in it, and they're going to buy what they need tomorrow. You know, I, I might, as an Army guy, I might need to wait two years till my that palm I produced to do that thing comes up in two years. Back to the user piece of this, what, what sorts of mechanisms are you building in so that the soldier can tell you or tell the contractor, whoever the relevant party is, you know, either hey, this stuff's really good, or this is terrible, I want my old system back. So the assessments piece is, is key here to, to evaluating how these pilots are working. Um, as, as part of our process, we're developing what, what does baseline look like today? Uh, number of factors, number of metrics, like I said, things like downtime, things like uh, t- time it takes for, for help desk remedies, um, throughput, bandwidth, uh, access, a, a lot of the common metrics that are used in the, the, the commercial sector, and then, and then measuring those over time. And, you know, hopefully we see an increase, and, and if not, we can evaluate why not. And I think it's important you know, to piggyback on Dan's point before, is uh, for us not to, to specify too closely to potential vendors uh, exactly what we need, 
but instead shift the Army's language in this space for what commercial industry uses universally. Right. Right. Uh, so, so, so we're not teaching them an alternate vocabulary for what we consider to be industry standard terms like, like uptime, like throughput, like bandwidth. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, we, they can use the same measurements that they would use for any of their other uh, uh, large-scale customers. And just a, a piece on the, the acquisition piece, sir, is uh, we have some service-level agreements and some metrics proposed in our, in our solicitation information. And if this was like the old way of doing things, the government would have said, we know best, here's exactly what you have to do. In the OTA, we're saying, here's our proposed metrics industry, but you tell us what you think is better. You know, So a classic one is keeping track of open tickets and closed tickets. Well, that may reinforce some behavior you really don't want to do, right? You may have you know, a help desk guy like, hey, the more tickets I open, the more tickets I close, the higher the workforce I can keep online here. And what industry industry's telling us is that's a bad metric. You want to make sure you, you, do, you, you build a system where people, users don't get really pissed off and have to open up multiple tickets. They're solved before they, the problem even occurs. Example is you come here to Fort Belvoir, plug in your laptop, You've got to go around and walk around and find the printers, map them, find some you know professional guy who knows how to do that. Uh, in a in a modern network, you plug in your laptop, it recognizes where you are, where the printers closest to you are. They map automatically. You never open up that ticket because you never had that problem. Hmm. Um, I want to talk about the concept of multiple vendors doing this, and you know, off, off the top of my head, I can think of pluses and minuses to that. The the, the pluses are obviously. You get more competition and more space for innovation. A potential big minus, it seems to me, though, is it, it may hamper your ability to build a true end-to-end -end enterprise network that can be seen and defended by our cyber and cybercom and, and, and start to build potentially vendor-specific silos on different bases. So, so talk to me about how you're going to avoid that kind of potential pitfall. Charlie, you want to talk about the operational piece, and I can talk about acquisition, if you will. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, on, on the operational side, it's important that we're not specifying a, a one desired product, one desired level of performance, uh, and we're aware that there's a diversity of product and performance out there in the commercial space today for, for commercial commercial buyers of, of, of large-scale IT. Um, we, we uh, the Army, uh, obviously have a unique challenge in that our, our mission-relevant data and communications needs to be well defended uh, and extremely timely based on operational requirements. So we're going to, you know, push the envelope and, and demanding a, a high level of, of, of quality to the service, but without getting too much of the technical specifics of it. And I think the diversity of uh, multiple vendors allows us to conduct that true pilot, as I said before, of really seeing what's out there, what different vendors might, might uh, be able to offer uh, and, and, you know, encourage competition and encourage new ideas and just see what's going to work best for the Army. And then from the, the acquisition side, it's certainly the case that, you know, we're in our solicitations, we're calling them vendors A, B, and C. It may be that vendors A and B and C each, each propose different, you know, communications architectures, both on the installation and the long haul wide area network. Um, that's one of the things we're going to learn out of the pilot. And it may be that it, it might be a little messy, right? It might be that, hey, vendor A and B, those guys, we like those architectures. The C architecture maybe wasn't the best. Um, that's the kind of learning we want to get out of this. And that as we go forward, you know, if the Army decides to go forward across the entire Army, 
we'll have to we can address that issue. The vendors we've talked to during our industry day, they've said basically we know how to do this. If if you know vendor A and vendor B each have two big banks and those two banks need to have, you know, share information to do transactions, the vendors, they know how to do that. They understand how to get that done, and it doesn't have to be that it has to be one vendor doing all of it. But certainly as we go across the Army, we don't want to have, you know, 15 different communications architectures, and that's something as we get done with the pilot, we may say, okay, now we want to, you know, down collapse on a hybrid of vendor A and vendor B's architecture. Well, but the, at the end of the day, especially from a security perspective, I'm assuming that vendor A, vendor B, and vendor C are all going to need to have architectures that are interoperable and plug into things like the joint yes. regional security stacks so that so that yes. Charlie's folks can see all the way down to individual endpoints, regardless of what base it is, right? So, Jared, that's a really good point. But, you know, part of the deal here we didn't touch on um, is industry standards and cybersecurity. And, and part of why the Army network is the way that it is today, it's not just because we're big, it's not just because it's expensive, it's because we require really high levels of, of security for the transport of our data. And that's always translated into uh, touching, observing, owning uh, from end to end uh, w with Army, Army um, people and Army equipment. And you know, part of the conversation with the vendors here is going to be what can we get for an acceptable level of security that's going to that's going to meet our standard, and and that's going to be probably one of the things that the the, the vendors are going to be working hard on um, to, to make sure that we're comfortable with that level, and and that involves things like visibility into JRSS, things like visibility into the data we need to conduct uh, active defensive cyber operations against our own networks. We're never going to transfer that that trust or authority or responsibility over to a vendor, and we're never going to relinquish it um, for, for our own cybersecurity needs. All right, related question. Going back to the, the experience of other services, I, I think one of the things the Navy would say about their early days of NMCI is they, they came to realize that they actually gave up too much control and, and too much visibility over things like how much individual components of the network cost. And so I'm just wondering if, if you have taken any specific lessons away from that and if you have any going in assumptions about how much control the Army needs to have over these vendor-provided, vendor-built networks. So I, I think it's safe to say that there's not any exact specific we can offer uh, that say, hey, we, we've definitely learned from the Navy that you don't give away X percent and therefore we're, we, we're, we have made a different decision. I, I think it's more of a broad, uh, broad observation of um, have to do pretty deep analysis on the front end as to what exactly we need to, to, to meet our own security requirements and to meet our mission and what exactly what the vendors uh, can offer based on the feedback that they're giving to Dan's office that's really going to improve our operational uh, stance here. Um, and, and like I said, different services have different challenges, and, and it's not um, a complete analog with the, with what the Navy went through. Uh, we're, we're we're learning some of the procurement lessons from them. We're learning some of those um, some of those points that you raised, like how how much should the service itself own and operate? Uh, the answer is not zero. The answer is not a hundred. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, but there's not a specific lesson learned. But there's there's a lot of really broad lessons that we're taking from both the Navy and the Air Force. So Dan, just to finish this off here, talk a little bit about the timeline. Um, if you're a soldier or a DA civilian, when might uh, this commercialized network structure be coming to a base near you? A lot of times people look across problems across all the Army camps, posting stations, and say, oh, ITAS is going to fix that. I remind people that 
if we get all nine of these sites up and running, we will have done about 3% of the Army. Right. So this this is a big, big problem for the Army, not a problem, but it's a big big in scope of the Army. The ITAS effort is, is compared to the entire Army IT infrastructure, is a very, very small pilot. It's important. Uh, to help us inform how we might go forward uh, down the road, and we're and we're working, we're going to work closely with our industry partners to make sure it's successful. We we don't get any benefit if we you know catch them in doing something wrong. We're going to work closely with them to make sure they're successful. There's a good teaming arrangement between you know us, the PO, our cyber, and, and the sites they're going to to see how they can do this better, and hopefully we can get a better outcome for Army IT across the entire enterprise. Yeah, I'm just curious, have you gamed out, assuming everything goes well, how many years it would take to do this worldwide on every post-camp station? Yeah, it, uh, we've done some excursions. You know, some people said we're going to do, you know, maybe, uh, you know, if you, if you did 30 a year, that would only take you about, uh, you know, in about 10 years. But that, that'd be a pretty rapid pace. Right. But as I understand the theory, at least, it's that, you know, it would take even longer under the government-owned, government-operated structure that you have right now to modernize all of those bases. Right. Yeah. And that's the path we're on now. I mean, some of the some of the war stories are, you know, how we program for things in the Army. You got a five-year plan. You plan for what's going to happen in five years. And if you're going to go put uh, upgraded network into a, a building you plan to build and the, and the building didn't quite finish on time, then you're sitting around with, you know, equipment that you can't use. And that's those kinds of things that we kind of don't have the agility that the, uh, you know, private industry guys might be able to do a little better at. That's Dan Joyce, the Army's Assistant Program Executive Officer for Cyber Networks and Services. Charlie Statlander, the Communications Director at Army Cyber Command, also with us to talk about the OTAs the Army's planning to award shortly for Enterprise IT as a Service. We'll post links to more information about those prototype announcements at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Another short break, and when we come back, we will dig into how the Air Force is reforming its healthcare enterprise. Lieutenant General Dorothy Hogg, the Air Force Surgeon General, will join us on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbia. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Air Force is changing the way it approaches medicine, including how it organizes its clinics and its medical staff. The goal, the service says, is to improve readiness and hopefully improve the quality of care without adding more medical professionals. In fact, as you'll hear, the Air Force may have to find ways to care for its personnel and other beneficiaries with fewer medical staff. Lieutenant General Dorothy Hogg is the Air Force Surgeon General. She says it's a new approach to handling the Air Force's two primary medical missions, providing ready medical forces and treating its beneficiaries, including airmen. She talked with Federal News Network's Scott Bassioni. This model now clearly takes those two missions and identifies the functions that fall under those two missions um, so that we can really focus in on them and make both of them as efficient and effective as we can. Uh, so it's going to improve the effectiveness of the delivery of care to our non-active duty beneficiaries, and it's going to improve the effectiveness of our care to our airmen to make sure that they're ready to do the mission that they need to do. So what is an average airman going to see? What are they going to see differently, and how are they going to be sort of touched more by the Air Force? Right now, they, their whole family, is pro to include themselves, uh, are probably enrolled to the same primary care provider. Mm -hmm. In this new model, 
the active duty will be enrolled into the new Operational Medical Readiness Squadron, while their beneficiaries will stay enrolled into their health care in the Health Care Operational Squadron. The care will be the same, delivering high-quality, safe, trusted care. That will not change. But what will change is, on the active duty side, what I like to call a laser focus to those military-unique medical requirements that our, be- our non-active duty beneficiaries don't need to be concerned with, such as um, doing preventative health assessments once a year, such as uh, uh, medical narratives when someone's going uh, in, uh, to a medical uh, board, whether or not they're still fit for duty, right? Those things were kind of intertwined into the delivery of the benefit for all, which can take some time. And so that will be delineated out. The other thing that you'll see in this new model is that uh, the squadrons will have their own PCM assigned to them. And that primary care manager will um, get to know that squadron, get to know those units, understand the the stressors uh, that apply to them, and be able to proactively mitigate some of those stressors to prevent illness or injury. How many people might be assigned to so one squadron to a PCM, or uh, is, it, is it more than that? Yeah. So uh, right now, our current um, standard for enrollment per PCM is 1,100 to 1. Okay. Okay, so it'll <laughs> roughly be about the same. Some might be a little bit lower, some might be a little bit higher, but it'll be about 1,100 to 1. And that seems like it might give a little bit more of a personalized care. Like you said, I mean, a doctor can say, I remember you, John Smith or Jane Smith, and... Um, you know, I know that your toe's been bothering you. Let's see what we can do, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Right now, and then so, and that provider will have been out into the squadron, and so if someone comes in with, uh, the easy thing is like back pain, right? Uh, the provider can go, I know what you do. Let's talk about how you're doing it, and maybe I need to send you to physical therapy, not to treat necessarily the back pain, but to give you some ways to. Uh, keep yourself from getting back pain or making it worse. So what I like to call prehab. Right. 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 Yeah. How is this timeline going to be working? How soon will airmen be seeing this specialized care? So we actually have um, clinics who have transitioned over into this new model. I, uh, last count, I think I have about five. The plan is to have 43 uh, military treatment facilities transition into this new model by the end of the summer. And then the rest of my treatment facilities to transition by the end by the end of uh, FY 2020, right? Um, and so uh, they can see some of that uh, going on now. Uh, some of our facilities have uh, jumped a little bit ahead because they they uh, are very excited about this new model and want to to deliver that that personalized care to our airmen. Uh, so they'll they'll start. They are seeing changes now. And uh, they'll see more of those changes as we move forward. How does this work on for the demand for your uh, medical staff? Because, I mean, it seems like you're going to have two different kind of a bifurcation, right? Uh, does that mean you need double the people? Oh, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, so what happened was uh, all of the primary care managers were in one squadron mm-hmm. in the old model. And what I did was however many active duty airmen, let me give simple math, 2,200. Right. So if 2,200 active duty airmen was on that base, then I would take two PCMs 
from the healthcare delivery side and put them in the operational medical readiness squadron. So the staff doesn't increase. I'm really just, I, I'm careful about separation because these two clinics are not separate and distinct. They are integrated and intertwined. Right. So they will complement one another because there will be services in one uh, squadron that the other squadron might need for one of their beneficiaries and vice versa. Uh, so they are connected. Uh, but we did uh, separate out the staff without increasing it. So can you take us a little bit behind the scenes on this decision? Uh, I think one of the things that, that pushed this decision was General Mattis or Secretary Mattis saying that he wanted service members who weren't deployable for 12 months to either leave the military or get the, the help that they need. So how did that influence what you're doing and how did other factors influence it? So we had actually been looking at this before that policy came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had both missions for as long as we've been in existence of delivering the benefit and delivering readiness to our airmen. And on any given day, depending on which fire was the hottest, we would focus in on that. So sometimes it was access and and doing uh, benefit delivery, and sometimes it was readiness. So this uh, gave us the opportunity to really, this whole reform, not just of my reform, but of the military health system reform, gave us an opportunity to really clearly identify who's responsible for delivering the benefit and who's responsible for readiness. So I could really focus in on now paying attention uh, 100% to what I like to call the mission-capable rate of my human weapon system. Let's talk a little bit about preventative care in the Mm -hmm. first place. Um, I I feel like we've seen, not only in the Air Force, but throughout the whole military, a more... um, a bigger push for this type of preventative care. You know, there's there's looks a look into the TBI type situations. The army's completely changed its physical fitness test. What is driving that that change? It seems like it's only been in the past like seven years that's really really been happening compared to I don't know the past sixty years they've been using a very similar model like right. model that's different but right. So you know what's driving this change is, um, in my opinion, is the the pool of our applicants that might want to come into the military, their health is dwindling. And so we need to be more focused, you know, on making sure not just that our own population is as healthy as it can be, uh, but also bleeding over into some of the uh, non-active duty uh, population to make sure that they're as healthy as they can be. We can't do our mission without airmen. You know, uh, as I said earlier, I, I, I like to call them the human weapon system. Um, no plane gets off the ground without a human touching it or flying it, manned or unmanned. Even if it's technology, someone has to push a button or pull a lever. And if those airmen are not 100% ready to do the mission that the nation calls us to do, then we need, we need to focus more in on that. And just waiting for something to happen um, doesn't get us there. We need They need to be 100% um, ready to do whatever it is we need them to do all the time. That is Lieutenant General Dorothy Hogg, the Air Force Surgeon General, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. They'll talk more about the Air Force's new health care model after one more break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio.
Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And again, our guest in this part of the show is Lieutenant General Dorothy Hogg, the Air Force Surgeon General. She talked with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about the Air Force's new health care delivery model being rolled out across its base hospitals and clinics right now. So moving back to the, the reforms, the Air Force reforms that you're making, how are you going to be keeping an eye on on how this progresses? How um, you know what kind of metrics are you going to be following? That kind of stuff. Right. So for this, for my reform, we do have metrics to look at um, how uh, what what I like to call mission capable uh, my airmen are. So we have I have three categories. You can be fully mission capable, partially mission capable, or non mission capable, and each one of those comes with a set of metrics. Uh, partially and non-mission capable. So, you know, do they have all of their um, immunizations up to date? Have they done their preventative health assessment? If they have eye issues, you know, have they gotten their eye exams that they need to do? So all of those are metrics that we will follow. And then if they're not fully mission capable, whatever that issue is that's keeping them from being fully mission capable, that will be case managed in the... uh, Operational Medical Readiness Squadron. So every airman will be individually cased managed for what their issue is that's keeping them from being fully mission capable to ensure that they're getting appointments that they need, referrals that they need, uh, those kinds of things. And then if we can't get them to be fully mission capable and we've done everything we can do to try to get them there, then we need to then consider sending them to a medical evaluation board uh, to see if whatever's going on with them, uh, if they can be retained or maybe if we might want to consider either medically retiring them or whatever. Right. And are you considering any other reforms to kind of integrate medical things into the everyday lives of airmen at this point? Or are you just going to kind of see how this reform goes and then maybe go to the next one? Yeah, so I'm going to use this one as a baseline. So to me, this is a living, breathing model. Right. Uh, right now, I only have a few facilities who've actually fully implemented the model. And as additional facilities uh, come on board, I, I will guarantee you we will learn things that we didn't know before. And so we will evaluate, evaluate each one of those to say, is this something that we want to now incorporate into the model and then make it the standard? I believe that there are opportunities where we might be able to monitor some chronic health conditions outside of the clinic. So home monitoring. So I'm looking at ways, how do I do that? Keep that person from having to come into the clinic if they don't really need to. Right. So Yeah, I mean, I, my dad had a bypass surgery not long ago, and they had everything, you know, hooked up to him, and then the nurse would call if something was wrong, and um, I'm sure that's that's something that's We can do that. Right? Yeah. right, we can do that. You know, we have that capability. So how, how do we get that? here in in our military health system too uh the last thing i want to touch on would be the the 18,000 medical billets dod is changing i guess we can say you know it's it's uh the the language is, is dubious in some ways but um you know how are you taking into account this change in staffing what does that mean for for the air force right now yes um so you know the the current hask language they put out some language that is making this a little bit pre-decisional now right um but uh, the way that we do this in the Air Force is every year we, we run what we call a critical operational readiness requirement model. 
And that considers all of the readiness requirements, the operational requirements that the, that the Air Force requires me to do and, and the combatant commanders need me to do. And when that model gets done running all of its assumptions, I get a number that tells me how many people I need in uniform to do my operational mission. In the Air Force, I knew that I was over in active duty members in doing my operational mission. And so that, that excess is what was considered for reduction um, to, um, to increase the agility and the lethality of the entire Air Force, because I am a part of the entire Air Force, right? right. And so there were needs in some other areas, and, and the, the decision was made that the risk in those other areas was important to fill. And I had some excess in uni- uniform members, and so they took that. Now, that excess also was part of being able to deliver the benefit, right? Uh, so um, that is something that we're really paying attention to and looking at closely uh, to see how we're going to cover down on that, how we're going to help the Defense Health Agency to cover down on that. Right, because, I mean, you have a natural excess because you are training, because you deliver things to you know, East Overshoe, Idaho, where it's, you know, there's like five people there, but you need one doctor at least. Right. right? That's right. Um, so, so how do you, what do you do to take that into account? That's just a, a matter of looking at the map and saying, okay, we need this many people, right? Right. So what we're um, doing now, what we've done when, when we were told to take some of those reductions is we went facility by facility and we looked at what was in the facility and we looked at what was in the market in the surrounding facility, close surrounding facility, was there capability, if we were to reduce services, was there capability within the market to take on that reduced services from the MTF? If the answer to that was yes, then we that's where we would take it from. If the answer to that was no, we didn't take it. So we left it there. Um, and so that's kind of how we're looking at that. And, of course, the big military health system transformation is looking at, at that really kind of tri-service globally. Uh, all the facilities are being looked at to see what their capability is um, and what's the capability within the market and are there opportunities to optimize both of those together. So have you started reducing your force at all? And I mean that by just purely not filling billets or by you know letting people go? Yeah, no. Um, so right now I have not. I have not. We have laid in the plan but I've not executed it. Um, the only uh, things that I, the only thing that I'm not doing in FY20 is filling vacant positions. Right. A- and those are positions that have been vacant for a long time. And can you give us any kind of sneak peek as to what that plan might look like? So it is we're going to take the plan the reduction over 3 years. Mm-hmm. We're going to uh, our plan is to do it by uh, normal attrition. So as people retire or separate, we will not fill those billets if that was a billet that we plan to reduce. And at the end of that three years, we'll look to see what I have left if, if I do have anything left. And then uh, I will have a discussion with our A1 folks to see uh, what we do after that. My desire is not to do any kind of force reduction. Right. Um, so um, I'll work with A1 to see if, if you know, if we, if whatever that, number is at the end of three years, you know, how could we do that uh, still through normal attrition? And do you know how much you would have to get rid of at this point or get rid of the terrible way to say it, but how many people you need to reduce? Yeah, reduce. 
Yes, I do. Uh, exactly. 4,684. <laughs> 84, okay. <laughs> um, and, and just, you know, one final thing that, that kind of goes on this, you know, how does that build into the national defense strategy when it comes to near-peer competition, mm-hmm. right? So I'm assuming, and, I, you know, feel free to co- correct me, that this is based on the wars that we're currently fighting, right? So how would you ramp up if you needed to or, or move to where you needed to? I, we would do that just like we do it today. For any kind of requirement that comes through the system, you know, we're always, every day, massaging our end strength numbers based on new requirements that come in or old requirements that go away. So we're always looking at that. And so as we um, uh, develop uh, new operational plans, if those uh, require new um, increased numbers, then I would take that through the Air Force corporate structure and identify what my needs are. And then the decision would be made, you know, how to, how to resource that. So that, that's, we do that today. That's nothing new. Lieutenant General Dorothy Hogg is the Air Force Surgeon General, speaking there with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Earlier in the hour, we talked with the Army's Charlie Statlander and Dan Joyce about that service's upcoming prototypes for Enterprise IT as a Service. If you missed that discussion, we'll post the full show along with links to the prototype announcement at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also listen anytime in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Servio. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.